nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thanks for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, it's your public radio station. Broadcasting from Kodiak, Alaska, up here on Signal Hill, where it's 51 degrees. We're looking at a light fog rain mist. Rain's forecast for the rest of the day, at least until 1 a.m. Southeast wind 15, gusting as high as 25 today, and as high as 20 tonight. High near 52 today, and a low around 48 overnight tonight. Not too big of a difference there. Rain's likely for Friday, mainly between 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. 30% chance of rain Friday night before 7 p.m., then mostly cloudy skies giving way to partly sunny skies on Saturday and just a chance of rain on Independence Day. Coming up on the Midday Report, Governor Mike Dunleavy has signed the state budget. Alaska Medicaid can no longer deny coverage to transgender Alaskans and more. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former President Donald Trump's family business and its longtime chief financial officer are facing criminal charges in New York City for alleged tax-related offenses. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports the indictments the result of a three-year investigation into the business dealings of the Trump Organization. Prosecutors with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office claim that the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, allegedly committed tax fraud and falsified business records as part of a scheme to pay the Trump Organization's top officials off the books. The goal, prosecutors allege, was to pay less taxes than they should have. Weisselberg and attorneys for the Trump Organization pleaded not guilty to the charges. The charges are expected to be the first of a continuing investigation by New York City prosecutors who are partnering with the New York State Attorney General's Office. Anzi Luang, NPR News, New York. Trump supporters are blasting the indictment, accusing the Manhattan DA of engaging in a witch hunt against a former president. Trump himself has not been charged. The remains of 18 victims have been recovered from the rubble of a condo building that partially collapsed a week ago in Surfside, Florida. More than 140 people are still unaccounted for. President Biden visited the site north of Miami to meet with rescuers and victims' families. Separately, Biden's reacting to a major Supreme Court decision today on voting restrictions. He says he's deeply disappointed the court upheld two Arizona measures. NPR's Aisha Roscoe reports that Biden says he'll take steps to protect voting rights. President Biden says that Supreme Court rulings over the past eight years have done severe damage to key provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In the latest case, the conservative majority overturned a lower court ruling that found Arizona's voting rules had an unequal impact on black, Hispanic and Native American voters. In the majority opinion, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito writes that the impact on minorities was relatively minor. Biden and civil rights activists have called for Congress to pass legislation that would ensure greater access to voting. Biden said the court ruling puts the burden on Congress to restore the Voting Rights Act to its, quote, intended strength. Aisha Roscoe, NPR News. 
The World Health Organization says Europe, where countries lifted more lockdown restrictions last week, could be facing a new surge because of the fast-spreading Delta variant of the coronavirus. The U.S. is facing a similar threat. Vaccination rates are hitting federal targets in some regions, but as CDC Director Rochelle Walensky notes, they're alarmingly low in others. As the Delta variant continues to spread across the country, we expect to see increased transmissions in these communities unless we can vaccinate more people now. She says about a thousand counties in the U.S., primarily in the southeast and Midwest, have vaccination coverage of less than 30 percent. This is NPR News. NPR News is brought to you in part by Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. For an appointment or more information, 481-2400. Governor Mike Dunleavy signed the state budget yesterday, but programs to lower the cost of electricity in high-cost areas and to pay for university scholarships won't be funded starting today. And permanent fund dividends are set at $525. That's the lowest level in PFD history when adjusted for inflation. Both the governor and legislators from every caucus have said they want to fund these programs, but the legislators haven't agreed on how to fund them. In previous years, the programs were funded through separate accounts the state maintains, like the $1 billion Power Cost Equalization Endowment Fund and the $340 million Higher Education Investment Fund by drawing from the Constitutional Budget Reserve to refill these accounts. The Constitutional Budget Reserve vote passed in previous years, but it was delayed in 2019, which led to the programs briefly being suspended. Both the House of Representatives and Senate fell short of the support of the three-quarters of their members needed to maintain these programs. Wasilla Representative Kathy Tilton leads the All-Republican House Minority Caucus. She says the members of the caucus will withhold the votes needed to fund these programs for now. They are first asking the legislature discuss and vote on a plan for the future of the budget. We still have the three-quarter vote ahead of us, and we're going to hold on to that. Several programs will have to stop until they receive funding. The soonest that can happen is during the next legislative special session, currently scheduled to begin on August 2nd. Some members of the House minority have said they want the programs to be funded in the regular state budget rather than from separate accounts, but majorities in both chambers oppose that approach because it would eliminate the Power Cost Equalization Endowment Fund and other accounts. They say that might undermine the programs. Dunleavy has proposed combining the PCE Endowment Fund with the Alaska Permanent Fund, which he said would protect it, but some lawmakers have expressed skepticism about his overall plan which includes setting permanent fund dividends at roughly $2,350. Anchorage Democratic Representative Chris Tuck is the House Majority Leader, having served as the Minority Leader five years ago. He pointed out during the debate on Monday that the vote used to fund these programs gives the Minority Caucus influence. Negotiations aren't done yet. There is tremendous power in a three-quarter vote. As minority leader in the past, I knew the importance of that three-quarter vote. A working group with members from each legislative caucus is expected to make recommendations ahead of the August special session for a fiscal plan that would include funding these programs. 
Starting this summer, Alaska Medicaid can no longer deny coverage to transgender Alaskans undergoing gender-affirming treatment. That's following the settlement of a class action lawsuit filed by Swan Being, a transgender woman from Homer, who said Alaska Medicaid refused to cover costs related to hormone treatment in 2019. KDLL Sabine Pooks has more. Being sued the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, which oversees Alaska's Medicaid program, and Department Commissioner Adam Crum. She alleged the state's policies discriminated against transgender Alaskans and violated the 14th Amendment, which grants all Americans equal treatment under the law. Being was the first to file the case. Robin Black and Austin Reed, both of Anchorage, joined as plaintiffs in 2020. Up until now, Alaska was one of 10 states that still explicitly denied Medicaid coverage for gender-affirming treatment, including surgery, hormone treatment, and therapy. Similar lawsuits are currently in motion in West Virginia and Georgia, says Carl Charles, an attorney with Lambda Legal. He co-counseled the case alongside the Anchorage-based Northern Justice Project. Charles says that kind of gender-affirming health care is life-saving for transgender people. And he says it's particularly important to protect access to that health care when it's contingent upon employment. When you consider that transgender people as a group, right, approximately 1.5 million of us living in the United States, adults, when you take into consideration that we are chronically underemployed as a result of anti-trans discrimination, that makes access to health care that much more difficult. Being relied on Medicaid for her health care and was diagnosed by her doctor with gender dysphoria, a conflict between a person's assigned gender and the gender with which they identify. The American Medical Association identifies gender dysphoria as a serious medical condition, the lawsuit says, with dire health implications if left untreated. The association says gender-affirming care is linked to a lower rate of suicide attempts and overall higher quality of mental health for transgender people. Being received hormone replacement therapy and, in 2019, planned to travel from Homer to Anchorage for further treatment. Alaska Medicaid typically covers travel for medical expenses, but because it didn't cover the hormone injections and lab work being sought, it denied her doctor's request to cover the trip. The other plaintiffs both reported a lack of coverage for gender-affirming surgery and hormones, according to the lawsuit. A spokesperson from the Department of Health and Social Services says the changes go into effect July 25th. The spokesperson also says the settlement is a result of both the Affordable Care Act and a 2020 Supreme Court case, Bostock v. Clayton County. That case upheld gay and transgender workers are protected under existing civil rights legislation. The state estimates the regulation change will cost the department an additional $28,000 each year, Charles says. Which it may say, is a real drop in the bucket. He says that's partly because there aren't as many transgender people living in Alaska as in other states. Even fewer are Alaska Medicaid recipients. But it is going to be life-changing, right? It will cost the state very little to make these people's lives really measurably improved. A 2015 survey of transgender Americans, including 84 Alaskans, found a third of transgender Alaskans had issues in the past year with insurance coverage related to being transgender. Nationwide, the American Medical Association found about a quarter of transgender patients seeking coverage for hormones were denied in the last year. That was true for over half of those who sought coverage for gender-affirming surgery. Healthcare costs are compounded for people living in remote communities in Alaska, 
Gorian Dadukian is an attorney with the Northern Justice Project. He says that was just one manifestation of the discrimination challenged in the suit. For folks who are living in the off-the-road system communities or where they can't get the care within their own communities, the travel component is a very big deal. When it comes to private insurance, however, there's no law barring insurers in Alaska and about half of all other states from excluding transgender-related health care coverage. All the plaintiffs in the case will also receive $60,000 for damages, according to the settlement agreement. For KDLL, I'm Sabine Pooks. Warm temperatures in southeast Alaska earlier this week were actually part of the stifling heat wave that has oppressively gripped the Pacific Northwest. Aaron Jacobs with the National Weather Service in Juneau says they call it a blocking pattern because it was blocking other incoming weather systems that could bring cooler temperatures and precipitation. Where we have big high pressures sitting over a certain area and then all the different other disturbances are kind of getting lift up and around it or kind of stable pattern so it can't really move and all this warm air is just building up and building up and that warm air has uh, moved its way up into uh, southeast Alaska and British Columbia. On Sunday, Juneau hit 80 degrees for the first time this year and on Monday it hit 83. Other communities set new records for the day like Ketchikan at 82 degrees and Sitka at 75. The forecast for the rest of the week calls for more clouds, cooler temperatures, and even a little rain for southeast Alaska. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has completed environmental studies of its project to decommission and dismantle a mothballed nuclear power plant at Fort Greeley. And now that the agency has reached that important milestone, it will soon begin the process of hiring a contractor to tear it down and remove the old facility. KUAC's Tim Ellis has this report. The Corps of Engineers issued two documents this week on its plan to decommission and dismantle the SM-1A, an experimental Cold War-era nuclear power plant on Fort Greeley that was shut down in 1972 and mothballed. The final environmental assessment and finding of no significant impact are required by the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. So we're in a formal 30-day wait period, after which point, um, the NEPA process for the project will conclude. Project manager Brenda Barber says during those 30 days, the Corps plans to complete work on an historic preservation agreement and apply for a decommissioning permit. And she says while that's in progress, the Corps hopes to move ahead on a smaller project that must be completed before the decommissioning and dismantling can begin. And that is disconnecting the old nuclear components from the now diesel-fired plant that provides heat and power for Fort Greeley. We are taking some initial steps to separate uh, the utilities between the north and the south end of Building 606, which is the building that houses the SM1A reactor. Barber says the Corps is negotiating with Doyon Utilities, the contractor that operates the power plant, to administer the utilities disconnection project, which the Corps hopes to begin soon. So that should start as early as late summer this year and it will clear the way for our decommissioning project in um, FY22 and 23. Barber says the core team working on the SM1A project also is preparing to begin soliciting offers from contractors interested in bidding on the decommissioning and dismantling project. I anticipate we'll be releasing a request for proposal in the late summer and offering a site visit concurrent with the release of that proposal so that potential bidders can view the site 
and prepare uh, their proposals uh, for the larger contract. The Corps hopes to complete the decommissioning and dismantling of the old SM-1A within the next seven years. In Delta Junction, I'm Tim Ellis. Alaska state troopers are investigating two cases of possible abduction and sexual assault in Fairbanks. KUAC's Dan Bross has this report. Fairbanks State Trooper Detachment Commander Captain Eric Spitzer shared cursory information about the two cases, which came to the public's attention through Facebook posts. Captain Spitzer says both involve Alaska Native women who were found along China Hot Springs Road east of town in recent weeks. He says the first case was reported as a sexual assault Sunday, June 13th. Victim was able to provide uh, some information. However, she did not have any recollection of the events that transpired. She just found herself out in a remote area and um, it took her a better part of a day to get back to the Chino Springs Road. According to a Facebook post by the alleged victim, she got drunk and was picked up by a man she didn't know and taken out to mile 28 Chena Hot Springs Road, where she later woke up in the woods. Citing the active status of the investigation, Captain Spitzer would not share additional case details. At this point, uh, we have had uh, conducted exams and interviews, and it's still under investigation. The other case occurred early this past Saturday morning. Two Rivers resident Amanda Brooks says she and her boyfriend were driving near Mile 4 Chena Hot Springs Road around 1 a.m. when they saw a young woman crouched in the roadside ditch. And so we, we pulled over and we walked up to her and she was kind of huddled on the ground with her, her knees against her chest and a, a flannel shirt wrapped around her. Um, and she had her hair flipped over her face and she actually kept her hair like that the entire time so we never saw her face. Brooks says there was a bottle of vodka next to the teenage woman. Brooks says the young woman did not say what happened to her, but she did not appear to be injured. Brooks says they flagged down a passing ambulance for help, and the EMTs called troopers. This was maybe like a 15-minute long process, but finally she agreed um, that she would go uh, with um, the ambulance. And when she stood up, that's when we realized that she was completely naked underneath her flannel. Brooks posted about the incident on Facebook and says she was contacted by someone in another area community who identified the teen as a runaway. The trooper Spitzer says the young woman did not file a report. Refused to cooperate with law enforcement or EMS and provide any information or any uh, answer any questions. Spitzer says there's so far no evidence that the cases are related. I would tell you if we had evidence of some type of serial rapist or someone abducting anyone, if we had any evidence like that. Spitzer asks anyone with information to report it directly to troopers. Rather than uh, turning to Facebook and social media and um, pushing information out, which you're not 100% sure of, uh, bring it to law enforcement. Let us investigate it and let us preserve the integrity of that investigation rather than pushing it out for the world. Captain Spitzer says the cases are especially concerning given the long-running epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women. Missing and murdered indigenous persons in Alaska, that's a, it's, a big, it's a big thing. Um, we're aggressively pursuing this. Spitzer advises people to be vigilant, adding that troopers have increased patrols in the area in light of the two cases, as well as recent arson fires in the China Hot Springs Road community of Two Rivers, Pleasant Valley. In Fairbanks, I'm Dan Bross. This 
is Alaska Fish Radio. I'm Lainey Welch. Dumping your doings overboard could net you a big fine. More after this. The Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute provides digital and print marketing materials to the Alaska seafood industry. Find thousands of stunning photos, high-quality video footage, and sales tools at alaskaseafood.org. Don't be dumping your doings overboard is a message from the state of Alaska to fishing vessel operators. The Department of Environmental Conservation reminds fishermen that it's illegal to dump sewage within three miles from shore. DEC Commissioner Jason Brune had this to say to KDLG in Dillingham. It is common practice, obviously, for folks to, to use a honey bucket on their boat and to just throw it overboard. So there is no doubt that it, it is an ongoing practice. So we're working to educate folks operating in our waters about the Clean Water Act. But I, I would encourage folks to you know, think about the water in general and think about being good stewards and, and to bring that for proper uh, disposal on shore. Dumping sewage overboard violates the Clean Water Act and can net you a fine of up to $2,000. The dumpings damage the nearshore environment by contaminating shellfish beds and fish habitat and can spread diseases to other people. All boats with onboard bathrooms must use Coast Guard-approved sanitation devices with storage tanks that are emptied at a pump station or beyond three miles. Boats with honey buckets also can use the pump stations or bag-style camp toilets that can be sealed and disposed of at approved collection areas. Along with the dangers of contamination, Brune points out that dumping stinky sewage simply sends the wrong message. We have environmental standards that we want to hold folks to uh, to make sure that we're, we're being protective of our marine resources, of our fish, and of the environment that we love here in Alaska. The DEC provides helpful guidelines and contacts. Find links at alaskafishradio.com. Thanks to the assist from KDLG. Fish Radio is also brought to you by OBI Seafoods. In Kodiak, I'm Lainey Welch. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Hello, this is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game in Kodiak with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement Number 12. Date issued July 1st at 10 a.m. There will be a 48-hour extension to the current commercial salmon fishing period from 9 p.m. Thursday, July 1st, until 9 p.m. Saturday, July 3rd, in the following areas. In the Cape Alatac, Humpy Deadman, Alatac Bay, Mosier Bay, and Olga Bay sections of the Alatac District. As previously announced, the following areas remain open to commercial salmon fishing until further notice. The Outer Iacoulik section of the Southwest Kodiak District, the Inner and Outer Upper Station sections of the Alatac District, and the Fowl Bay Special Harvest Area and the Waterfall Bay Special Harvest Area. Cost recovery fisheries began in the Spearden Bay Special Harvest Area, also known as Tellrod Cove, in, and the Spearden Bay Special Harvest Area will remain closed to common property fishing. Fishing opportunities in the Spearden Bay Special Harvest Area will depend on the ability to meet the Regional Aquaculture Association's cost recovery needs, and all cost recovery information may be obtained by calling 486-6559. Closed waters are currently reduced until further notice in the following areas. Um, in the inner upper station section of the Alatac District, waters will remain open to the stream terminus of Olga Creek, stream number 257304. 
in Foul Bay to the stream terminus at Hidden Lake Creek, stream number 251406. And in Waterfall Bay to the stream terminus at Little Waterfall Creek, stream number 251822. And to the stream terminus at Big Waterfall Creek, stream number 251821. Fishermen are reminded that in the Kodiak area, including the mainland district, until further notice, king salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by per gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Other closed waters are shown in the Kodiak area salmon statistical chart and detailed commercial salmon fishing regulations and statistical charts, harvest strategies, and commercial salmon fishing regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game Office. And, of course, the most recent salmon fishery information may be obtained by calling the department's 24-hour recorder phone at 486-4559. Thank you very much. Good luck fishing. This is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. Good afternoon, and welcome to your Island Messenger for Thursday it is the first day of July, the year 2021. The sun rose today at 5.14, won't set again until 11.12, giving us 17 hours and 58 minutes of daylight, a loss of 1 minute and 29 seconds compared to yesterday. The record low for this date was 37, set in 2008, and the record high was 79, set in 1974. Currently 51 degrees here in Kodiak. And we're looking for rain for the rest of the day, mainly before 2 a.m., high near 52, they're saying. Southeast wind 15 miles per hour, gusting as high as 25. For tomorrow, rain likely mainly between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., mostly cloudy skies in the late afternoon tomorrow with a high near 54. South wind to 20, gusting as high as 30 tomorrow. For Friday night, a 30% chance of rain before 8 p.m., Mostly cloudy skies, low around 47. South winds gusting as high as 25 on Friday night. Partly sunny skies on Saturday. South winds coming down to 10 miles per hour and highs near 55. Looking at our local tides, we have a low tide coming up here on the east side at 152 this afternoon. It'll be a 0.8 foot tide, followed by a high tide at 8.40 p.m. of 7.1 feet. Over on the west side, and these are Zachary Bay tides, you have a low tide coming up at 2.26 p.m., a 1.8-foot tide. Your next high tide will be at 8.57 p.m. and be 12 feet. If you're thinking about going out on the water for Marmot Bay, you do have a small craft advisory through tonight. East wind to 25 knots and seas to 8 feet right now in Marmot Bay. For tonight, east 25, seas to 7 feet, subsiding to 4 feet after midnight. And for tomorrow, southeast 20, seas to 7 feet in Marmot Bay. Up in Chini or down in Chiniac Bay, southeast 20, seas to 6 feet. For tonight, southeast 20, seas to 6 feet. And for tomorrow, south 20, seas to 2 feet in Chiniac Bay. The Kodiak Island Borough Assembly will be having a meeting tonight at 6.30 p.m. in the Assembly Chambers. That meeting is open to the public and will be broadcast live here on KMXT. The 4th of July 5K and 10K run walk will not be held on the 4th of July. It will be held on Friday, July 2nd. And you'll want to register at the pool on race day at 4.30 p.m. Runners will start at 6 p.m. and walkers at 5.30 p.m. And the new course starts at the Armory at 125 Powell Street. 
But again, you need to register on Friday, July 2nd, 4.30 p.m. at the pool for the 5K and 10K run walk. Kodiak Arts Council and Lucky Pierre Productions proudly present an evening of music at the Kodiak State Fairgrounds on Saturday. The gates will open 6 p.m. and the music begins at 6.30 with Frank Sullivan and Jillian Lee, followed by Kodiak favorites Elemy Tiller and The Twang, then the headliners Blackwater Railroad Company. You can enjoy a cold beer in the beer garden and a deluxe hamburger prepared by the Kodiak Lions Club. For complete details and tickets for the concert, go to the Kodiak Arts Council website at kodiakarts.org. The Chiniac 4th of July Celebration Parade is happening on the 4th. That's Sunday. It begins at 4 p.m. It's a parade only. They're keeping it simple. No potluck this year. The parade route will be from Rhodes End to Silver Beach. Come join in the fun. Floats, four-wheelers, bikes, horses, cars, walkers. Everyone is invited to participate or come watch. Dress as patriotic, red, white, and blue. And again, that's Sunday the 4th. Starts at 4 p.m. at Rhodes End. And come share your American spirit and Chiniac pride. And if you don't have any patriotic clothing, don't worry. They will have totes of patriotic clothing and decorations for use in the parade for everyone at the Rhodes Inn. And it's rain or shine. 2021 is the 22nd annual Chiniac Parade. So again, 4 p.m. at Rhodes Inn. A $50 gift card is yours, courtesy of several local businesses, when you get your COVID-19 vaccine. If you received your vaccine after June 15th or are about to get it, just bring your vaccination card to the Kodiak Baptist Mission Office. That's at 1944 East Brazonoff Drive, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. That's funded through a grant from the 2021 Local Community Organization's Vaccination Incentive Grant. More information, call 486-4126. But again, if you've got your vaccination after June 15th, just go to the Kodiak Baptist Mission Office on Mazanoff, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 1220, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.